Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so does anybody know off the top of their head who the ninth president of the United States was? The ninth. I, I didn't expect you to. It's, you think? No. Okay, it's William Henry Harrison. Now, does anybody know what's unique about William Henry Harrison? He served only 32 days in office as president. He was the oldest man ever to hold office at that time, and he died from complications from pneumonia. So he never got the joys or the heartache of serving as president. I mean, he was president for 32 days. Now think about, that's a long tenure, isn't it? That's not even a month, as being president. When I was in high school, um, I was a big Lakers fan, and I used to, um, there was a, a rivalry between the Lakers and the Celtics back in the 80s, and I don't know if you guys remember, the 1986 draft, this was in Larry, when Larry Bird was at the height of his career, and there was a player from Maryland named Lynn Bias, Lenny Bias, and he was drafted by the Boston Celtics, and he was gonna be this huge player to come on the Celtics, and so the night that he got drafted, he went out and partied, and he had never taken cocaine before in his life. And he took cocaine, and that night he died of cardiac arrest as a young man, 20, 20 21 years old. Um, never got to play for the Celtics, never got to enjoy his basketball career. His life was, was cut short, just like that. So <clears throat> you can probably think of other people whose careers were cut short, either by death, injury, or maybe even a scandal. So whether it's serving as a president for 32 days or being drafted by the Boston Celtics to play with Larry Bird and dying of a cocaine overdose, life can be cut short. And oftentimes, you don't get second chances. How many of us would like a do-over at times in our lives? Or as they say in golf, well, they call it a mulligan. How many of you guys would like a mulligan? Well, last week, what did we see about King Nebuchadnezzar? Last week, King Nebuchadnezzar was living in pride. Remember, he was standing on the top of his palace and look what I built, look what I made, look at all this stuff that I've done. And what did God do? God immediately, as the words were coming out of his mouth, struck him with some weird type of, I don't know if you want to call it disease or problem, where he, remember, he ate grass like a cow, got long clawed nails, long hair, and was out there getting wet in the grass, and it said for a period of seven. We don't know if that was seven months. Most scholars say it was seven years. Now, after that period of seven, what happens? He comes to his senses. He had been humiliated. God was gracious to Nebuchadnezzar and really gave him a chance to repent. He didn't take him out. Could have God taken Nebuchadnezzar out at that moment on the top of his palace when he's looking out and said, boom, you're done, Nebuchadnezzar. He could have done that. He didn't. He humiliated him for a period of sevens. But then when Nebuchadnezzar came out of that, what did we see last week? He praised the Lord. It was the very first time praise came out of his lips to the Lord. We saw a genuine transformation. God is sovereign. I'm not. God is powerful. I'm not. He humbled himself. There was a true transformation in Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't immediate judgment. It was discipline 
that led to repentance. So, what happens when life is cut short? Or what happens when you see the proverbial writing on the wall? What does the writing on the wall mean? I see the writing on the wall. What does that mean? Time's up. Bad announcement. Bad announcement. Time's up. Okay. Well, actually, that phrase comes from Daniel chapter 5. The writing on the wall. But before we get to Daniel chapter 5, I want us to go to Luke. We're going to start tonight with a parable, and we're going to end tonight with a parable, both from Jesus in Luke chapter 12, because this parable frames frames Daniel chapter 5. And it's the parable of the rich fool. So in your Bible, turn to Daniel, I mean not Daniel, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. And Jesus tells this parable. So we'll jump back into Daniel, but I want to start tonight with the parable, end tonight with the parable. These two parables are going to kind of bookend Daniel chapter 5. So you guys ready? Here we go. Daniel, I mean, Daniel, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable. Okay, here's the parable. Saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There are eight eyes and four mys in this parable. Look what I've built. I, I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. And so in verse 19, hopefully you're following along on your, I don't have a PowerPoint tonight, so this is kind of on your sheet here. So in verse 19, he has a false sense of security. What does he say? Eat, drink, be merry. I can relax. I can take it easy. I, I can enjoy the pleasures of life without a care in the world. Does he ever at once acknowledge God for his abundance? He's been blessed beyond measure. He's been blessed financially. He's been blessed with crops. So basically, he's not willing to share his wealth. He's not willing to acknowledge God. So sadly, he is an atheist at heart. Now, why is he an atheist at heart? He never once attributes any of this blessing to God. He never once says, God, look what you've done to bless me. God, these crops, all this blessing is from your hand. Um, he doesn't pray to God. He doesn't seek the wisdom of God. He's basically an atheist at heart. And he's covetous. He's greedy. He's rich toward himself. And how does God respond to this man who basically says, look at all I've done? What does God call him in verse 20? God said to him, what? You fool. Fool. That's, that's strong language. You fool. That night, this very night, your soul is required of you. You fool. 
Now, where does that language of you fool come from? Why, why would he be called an atheist? Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The fool says there's no God. What's basically this, this rich fool saying? I've accomplished all of this. I'm not giving credit to God. I can do whatever I want with my riches. I can sit back. I can relax. Life is great. And what does God say? Tonight, your soul is required of you. Psalm 39, 4-5. O oh Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Life is short, isn't it? And God says to this fool, this very night, your soul is required. It's interesting, it's interesting that Greek word required was used by a banker that would call a loan in to be paid off in full. It's due. Your bank loan is due, plus interest. <laughs> So basically what he's saying to us is God's the eternal banker saying to this man, okay, your final payment's due. Your life, is, your life is due. I'm requiring of you your soul tonight, you fool. And yet this man has no one to leave his abundance to. He dies lonely, an atheist, and being called a fool by God. And his life is cut short. Psalm 49.10. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Because of his foolishness, this man's life was cut short and the judgment was immediate. How do we know the judgment was immediate in that parable? What, is, what does God say to him? This night, your soul is required of you. You are going to die tonight. No time to repent, no time to change, no time to get right. God says enough is enough. I'm giving you no time. Your time's up. Now, this is a parable of the rich fool. So in a way, this parable frames the story for us in chapter 5, which compellingly shows us the actions of the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, the new king Belshazzar. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 5. Remember, last week was the end of Nebuchadnezzar. He, he, he dies, or he, he's off the scene, no more to be in. We don't know if he died in chapter 4, but he's, he's no longer to be heard of in the rest of the book of Daniel. So in Daniel chapter 5, you have a new king, King Belshazzar. Now, if this is 23, let me give you some time here. This is 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, historical records show us that Nabnodius was the true king. Nabnodius was Nebuchadnezzar's son. But Belshazzar was his grandson that ruled alongside of him. And so when the text says, son and father, don't be confused, archaeology, historical documents show us that Belshazzar here was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. And sometimes they would call their grandfather's father. So 
Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel is probably in his early 80s here. Okay, so Daniel's an old man in his 80s. And um, what I want us to do is I want us to notice four major issues surrounding this narrative tonight of Belshazzar. And it's interesting, I said the writing on the wall. The ESV's title above chapter 5 says the handwriting on the wall. Is that what yours says? Okay. So let's look at the first thing here. The first thing we see tonight is gross idolatry. Gross idolatry. So let's read Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, and let's see the gross idolatry of Belshazzar. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in all the kingdom. And all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Okay. What do we see from the very beginning here? I mean, the, the very first thing we see here is this king's making a huge feast for all of his buddies and all the, the, the leaders of the, the thousands of these key leaders in the country. And so it's basically shameless self-promotion. He has this great banquet where he brings in a thousand people so that he could eat alone and drink wine in front of them and basically... It's, it's like shameless theatrics, okay? If, if you read between the lines, what you're seeing here, this is like the rock star or the diva or the athlete that walks into the room and wants everybody to look at him. Like they want to make a scene. They want to make a grand entrance. They want to be the center of attention. It's kind of like, I don't even watch the Academy Awards anymore, but some of you may too. What's the red carpet at the Academy Awards? It's where everybody gets out of the limo and they walk down the red carpet so they can get the picture taken and they can be seen like, what's she wearing? And da 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 or what's she not wearing, or you know, things like that. So he's basically intoxicated, and it's kind of funny because he's really a nobody of a king. Did he build the nation the way his grandfather did? I mean, his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, actually built the nation of Babylon, the hanging gardens, all these palaces, military ruler. So he's basically just kind of living on the laurels of his grandfather. He's just this rich king, I'm going to throw a party. And so this King Belshazzar is resting on the laurels of his grandfather, and the one thing he knows how to do is what? Party. He knows how to party, okay? <laughs> He's like the rich fool in Jesus' peril. His motto is relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Or in our vernacular, let's party. 
But I want you to see, not only is he drawing attention to himself, but what he's doing is blasphemous. Okay, did you catch what he's doing? Look at, look at verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of where? The temple in Jerusalem be brought. Then verse 3, they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. Okay. If you go back to Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, those articles, that glass, not glass, but that the gold vessels, the gold um, drink, what am I talking about? Goblets and all the, the stuff that was in the temple, that was, that was sacred. That was set apart by God. So that was, that, the author here is making a huge point that this is blasphemous to take the utensils that should have been holy in the temple. Now they're being used by a pagan king in this huge party where everybody's getting drunk with his concubines and basically it's just this free-for-all. So he is getting these articles that were devoted to temple worship and he's trashing them purposely in rebellion. So this was the height of blasphemy. He showed no restraint. He was using the gifts of God from the temple as a form of pleasure. He was abusing the things that God ordained to be set apart as holy in the temple. So, shameless self-promotion, shameless desecration of the gold, silver, and bronze. And then, what are they worshiping? I mean, it's, it's pretty... Um, it's pretty blatant there in verse 4, right? They drank wine and what? Praised the lowercase g, gods of what? Gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, how, how blatant is that? <laughs> they praise, they worship the gods of money, gold and silver. So instead of worshiping the one true God that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had finally bowed down to, his grandson shows arrogant defiance and gross idolatry. Now, what word is repeated five times in this passage of Scripture? It's to show us something. It's the word drink or taste wine. They're getting drunk. They're getting intoxicated. So this is a banquet of iniquity. Okay, not just his wives there, but who else is there? His concubines. You can read between the lines what's, what's happening here. You've got a thousand of these inebriated, <laughs> decadent people, party and hearty, out of control, bowing down and worshiping not only, I mean, you can just picture this scene in your mind. They're bowing down and worshiping the gods of money and, I mean, you, you know where this is leading to. So this is, this is a party of idolatry. This was a banquet of iniquity. This is not anywhere near what his grandfather learned. What did his grandfather learn? When you act prideful and you spurn the God who gave you everything, you will be humiliated. Now, I cannot help but think that his grandson knew that. Don't you think Grandpa would have told the story? Hey, grandson, the God of heaven 
humiliated me, and for seven years I walked around like a cow, chewing grass. So it's not like the grandson didn't know what had happened to him. He knew exactly what had happened to his grandfather, but he didn't care because Proverbs 18.12 says this, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. So here's the question. What were we waiting for for four chapters with King Nebuchadnezzar? Will he ever bow in humility? Will he ever transform? Will he ever worship the one true God? Well, here we're introduced to his grandson, and we've got to ask the same question. Is this guy going to bow to the Lord, or is he going to continue in his pride, and is he going to continue just like seeking pleasure and getting drunk and partying hardy? So right in the middle of this decadent, idolatrous, drunk fest, Verse 5, what happens? Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Now that would freak you out, would it not? That's freaky. A hand, the human hand just shows up out of nowhere. Now this is not a fairy tale. This has literally happened. This hand shows up and starts writing in the plaster on the wall. Okay. Now, I want you to notice the words immediately. Because it's crucial to understanding this chapter. God does not give this man a chance to repent. It's almost as God has had enough. God's like, I've had enough of this, this gross idolatry. I'm going to intervene immediately. Now, this is a cleaned up version of what happened here. Okay, if you how did the king respond? Verse 6, the king's color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. That, that's kind of a cleaned up version. What the original language implies is that the king wet his pants. He went into a convulsion of horror, and his bladder went out of control. So the ESV kind of cleans it up. He peed his pants. Okay. He was so alarmed, distraught, that he ended up urinating on himself. Now, the question you've got to ask is, had not his grandfather somewhat have gone through this? He was kind of alarmed. He had had some conviction without conversion. So is this signs of true repentance, or is this just a guy that's freaked out? Well, let's keep reading and find out. He's scared to death, but did this fear turn into repentance? Okay? Now, the second thing we see is his grievous memory, his terrible memory, okay? So what does he do? He brings in the wise men, the astrologers, and says, get me somebody in here that can interpret this, that what's, what's going on here. Remember what his grandfather did? I had, he had two dreams, right? Bring in the astrologers to interpret the dreams, and finally Daniel came in. Well, how old is Daniel now? He's in his 80s. And I'm sure that Belshazzar grew up knowing, hey, if you want somebody to interpret something freaky, <laughs> if you want somebody to come in and explain a dream or something weird, Daniel's your man. He's been around for 80 years. He's a man of wisdom. Why didn't you choose Daniel? But the first thing this king's thinking of is, I got to go to my astrologers. I'm not going to lower myself to go to this Daniel guy. He's, he's an old guy. He's been around. My, my grandfather may have used him as a counselor, but I'm going to go with these astrologers. So let's keep reading verses 10 through 17. 
The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So, we find out here that Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel to be the chief, one of the highest positions in the government. And I'm sure everybody knew, including this king, Daniel's position, who Daniel was, that Daniel could easily give the king an answer. But who has to come in and, and run interference? The queen mother has to come in and rebuke her son, her grandson basically, and say, you're going about this all wrong. Daniel is a man that has wisdom and understanding. And so in verse 12, notice what she said about Daniel in verse 12. He has an excellent spirit. He has an excellent spirit. Now she may not have known exactly what made Daniel tick or what gave Daniel his ability to understand these dreams and these weird things, but we know that it was the Holy Spirit influencing his life. He was not only a knowledgeable and articulate man who could hold his own in the court of Babylon, but ultimately Daniel's success came because of what God's Spirit had done in him to give him maturity, wisdom, and understanding. Now here's the question. Is this grandson going to be all into Daniel? Is he going to be like, oh yeah, let's, let's bring him in right away? No, let's keep reading. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, Oh, you're that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now these wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you should be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so they dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken away. <coughs> okay. So let's just talk about how Daniel's treated here. He's almost treated as a has-been, isn't he? It's kind of kind of rude. Oh, yeah, you're that Daniel that my grandfather used to have as a counselor. One of the exiles. Didn't even call him. Like, Daniel's 80 years old. You're one of those exiles, one of those, those kids that came from, from Judah a long time ago. Yeah, you're, you're, my grandfather promoted you. You're, you're that Daniel. 
Now, how disrespectful is that to Daniel? How old is Daniel? He's in his 80s. Daniel is a godly man that never once did anything wrong. He's a statesman. He has a high position in the government. He doesn't need to be treated this way. But this king doesn't think Daniel's that much of a person. He's basically like, I've heard of you. Yeah, you're going to have to prove yourself to me. Do you, you know, it's, it's really just kind of this condescending, hey, I'm the top dog. I'm this um, awesome king. Come in here and prove yourself. And you may have been some big deal in front of my grandfather, but to me, you're not really much of a deal. So prove yourself. So he's not showing him respect and dignity of being a statesman who's greatly helped his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. He has a really bad memory. And he's suspicious of Daniel. And then what does the king do? Did you catch it? It's kind of subtle. He tries to buy Daniel off. You see what he did? Hey, Daniel, if you interpret the dream, I'll give you a purple robe and promote you to third in the kingdom. Well, wasn't Daniel already pretty high? I mean, Daniel was pretty high in the kingdom already. Notice what he says there. He says there in verse 16, I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Hey, I'm going to give you bling if you can figure this out. I'll give you a purple robe. I'll give you a golden chain. I'll promote you. You know, I'll give you this, you know, I'm in charge and I can basically, you know, give you all this good stuff. Daniel's 80 years old. He's seen everything. What does he say? <laughs> he's trying to butter Daniel. What does he say in verse 17? Uh, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to somebody else. King, I don't need your gifts. I don't need your money. Um, I don't need any of that. Now, it's funny because in Daniel's chapter 1 through 4, Daniel's a little bit more diplomatic. He's a little bit more gentle. He is a little bit more respectful because he's a younger man. Now he's in his 80s and doesn't have much to lose. What's he? He's like, I'm not buying this king. Keep your stuff. I'm just going to tell you the dream. So, so Daniel's like, done with all the pleasantries. Um, he, Daniel emphatically tells the king he won't be bought. He can keep his gifts. And he stands up to the king with a strength and conviction that's truly outstanding. Now, he cannot be bought. Why can Daniel not be bought? Because he's a man of principle. He's a man of integrity. He serves God alone. He has known, he's walked with God all these years to know that if I stand as a man of integrity under the lordship of Christ, uh, with God as my sovereign, everything's going to work out. So I don't need to be bought off by this king. I'm just going to come in and tell the king what the writing means. So, And especially, how would he be bought off? What would he be bought off with? Gold. Where do you think that gold may have come from? The temple that they raided. Daniel's like, if you're going to give me gold, please don't give it to me from the temple that you guys raided from Jerusalem. I mean, he doesn't say that in the text, but you can kind of just picture that. I mean, think this king's arrogant. Okay, you 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 kind of have to realize this this guy reeks of arrogance. I'm going to throw a party for myself. I'm going to invite a thousand of these dignitaries. I'm going to walk in like I'm all that. I'm going to walk down the red carpet. I'm going to have my concubines on one side. I'm going to have my wives on the other side. I'm going to be drinking out of these big uh, gold goblets. We're going to be getting drunk. Everything's cool. I see the writing on the wall. Not a very good moment for the king because he pees his pants in front of everybody. 
And then he calls in his astrologers and he freaks out and his mom comes in or his grandma comes and says, hey, you've got to bring Daniel in because that's who your grandfather used. And then Daniel comes in, he's like, prove yourself. You, you, know, you, you don't know who you're dealing with. I'm the top dog here. So, so really it's kind of a pitiful picture of a king that thinks he's all that. Okay, so let's keep reading. The third major issue we see is a glaring judgment. A glaring judgment. Okay, so um, let's go back to verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. So he's basically saying, listen, king, everything that you have that you've inherited from your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar came from God, the most high God, the God of heaven. Yahweh, he gave that. And God was the one that caused the nation to thrive there in verse 19. Because of the greatness that he gave him, the people's nations and language trembled and feared before him. Whom he would kill, he killed. Whom he would kept alive, he kept alive. Whom he would raised up, he would have humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken away from him. So what's Daniel doing? Daniel's reminding this grandson, what happened to his grandfather, and just in case he forgot. So he's going to explain it again. Verse 21, he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, Though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Okay. Daniel does something here that we often see in the Old Testament prophets. He brings a lawsuit against the king. He basically puts the king on trial. It's like a court. I'm going to bring in the evidence. First item of evidence, your grandfather. What happened to him? Second item of evidence, you have not learned any of this. You're still getting drunk. You're profaning the, the temple with the gold that you brought out of there. You are not bowing to the absolute sovereignty of God. So basically what Daniel has to do is give him a little history lesson. The most high God is the God that put your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar in his kingdom. It was only by God's sovereignty. And your grandfather was humiliated like a weird cow walking around eating grass. And you knew this. You've known this. You've grown up knowing this. Why aren't you learning the lesson that your grandfather had to learn. The sin of your grandfather was pride and arrogance and haughtiness. It's your sin too. He learned his lesson the hard way. Will you learn your lesson the hard way? And so Daniel has to give him this history lesson. It's not as if he doesn't know it. It's almost like he is suppressing it. He's putting it out of his mind. Now, we know what happened with King Nebuchadnezzar. He eventually repented. He came to his senses. He praised the God. He finally acknowledged the God of heaven. Okay? And so in verse 22, Daniel pierces him with the ultimate in evidence. What does verse 22 say? And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, 
though you knew all this. You knew this. You knew the story of your grandfather. You knew of his radical transformation. You knew he was a man engulfed in pride. You knew how he was humbled. You knew all this, but yet you have not humbled your heart. And then Daniel reminds him of something. Oh, in an act, in an, I'm sorry, I skipped a slide there. In an act of outright belligerent arrogance, this king blasphemed the living God, got drunk on the gold and silver from the temple in Jerusalem, and worshipped false gods. That was like the height of his arrogance. And then Daniel reminds him of something significant at the end of verse 30, of 23. What does he say? God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. King, the, the air you're breathing right now is because God's given you that air. God's given you those lungs. Everything you have is a gift from God. The very fact that you're alive right now in front of me, breathing and living and not been struck down dead yet, is because God gives everything to you. God has sovereignly ordained everything you have. Everything's a blessing from the hand of the living God. You own nothing. You're in charge of nothing. You, your very breath is in his hands. But you've blasphemed this God. You've rebelled against this God. Your heart has not been humbled before this God. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1. What it talks about idolatry in Romans chapter 1. Uh, verses uh, 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. So they, he, he's exchanging the glory of God for created things. Now this is where the sin of Belshazzar is very dangerous. He is not sinning out of ignorance, is he? What does Daniel say to him? You knew all this. You know what your grandfather went through. This is no surprise to you what happens when somebody in your position does not humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. You're going to do it your way. You're going to be pompous. You're going to be prideful. This is outright, obstinate, willful, cold-hearted rebellion against the living and Daniel gets in his face and says, you know better. You knew what happened to your grandfather. Do you? I mean, think about what the grandfather, think about, okay, this is not in Daniel, but just, think, just picture it in your mind. This could have happened. Okay, it's not in the Bible, but it could have happened. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar takes his grandson. They go on a little walk out into the hanging gardens. Grandfather, grandson. One day, Belshazzar, you're going to be king over this whole nation. Let me tell you what happened to me when I stood on this very, maybe he took him up to the top and said, I stood on this very place and I looked out over the palace and I looked out over my kingdom and I was bringing glory to myself and all this stuff happened. And, and, and the Daniel's God, the God of heaven, the God of Israel, humiliated him like you've never seen and then goes on to tell him the story. Don't let that happen to you. Whatever happens when you become king, humble yourself. Follow this God. 
Be obedient to this God. Let Daniel be your counselor. Whatever you do, don't do what I did. Can you guys picture that being a possibility at least, even though it's not in the scriptures? Because all, I mean, we don't know how Belshazzar knew that, but Daniel says you knew that. So I'm sure Daniel has been in the court for 80 years, or I mean, he's 80 years old. He's seen this guy grow up. He's seen the interaction between father and grandfather and father and, son, and grandfather and, and grandson. So he's, he's seen this. So it's not as if Belshazzar is innocent. He's doing this willfully. So Daniel explains the writing on the wall. So let's look at verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Okay. Let's look at these three words. Mene, was the first word basically meaning your kingdom's over. Now, this is the ultimate realization of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, remember, of the gold statue and the stone coming and, and crushing that down. The chest of arms of silver were coming very soon on the horizon. There's a new power on the... So basically saying to Belshazzar, your kingdom's over. It's coming to an end. Tekel... The king was weighed and found wanting. You ain't that much, king. We put you on the scales and you're pretty puny. Now, how did, you, how did he esteem himself? How did the king think he weighed? Well, if there's anybody that weighed the most, if there's anybody the most popular, if there's anybody that, that deserved the most attention and praise, it's me because I'm throwing parties and I'm having all these people coming and I'm, I'm partying hardy. I'm this awesome dude. If anybody's found wanting, it's not me. I've been weighed, and I'm the dude. I'm the man. And Daniel says, no, the writing on the wall says you've been weighed, and you've been found wanting. So he thought he was the greatest in the land. If there was anybody who could be weighed and found to be substantial, powerful, and successful, it was himself. But in the scales of God's righteousness, Belshazzar was morally bankrupt and worthless. He was found wanting. And then Perez is the last word. And it simply meant that the Medes and Persians were that new empire that would take over Babylon. Okay, remember we talked about this back in chapter 2. Babylon, Medes and Persians, Assyrians, Greece, Rome. Those are the nations that will come after Babylon. Okay? So these, this writing on the wall writes these, these words. And I don't know if those words are in Aramaic or, or really what if they're just words that were weird words that they didn't know what they meant. Um, but Daniel's able to interpret them and give the meaning of those words. Okay, so what do you think the king should have done when he heard that warning? Your kingdom's over, you're morally bankrupt, and you're about to be taken over by the Medes and Persians. What do you think the king should have done? What did his grandfather do? Well, his grandfather had to be humiliated. What do you think he should have done? Well, let's see what he does, and then you guys tell me if he does the right thing. <laughs> okay, so 
here's the fourth thing that we're going to see tonight. And that is the gravity of defiance. The gravity of defiance. Okay, verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Okay, this is kind of a shocking ending. What? The king doesn't blink an eye, and what does he immediately do? I told you I'd buy you off. You interpreted the dream. So what do you get? You get the bling. You get the gold necklace. You get the purple robe. I'm going to promote you. So what should have the king done? He actually goes against Daniel's wish. Remember Daniel said, I don't need this stuff. I'm just going to interpret to you the dream. But he goes ahead and does it. What should he have done? Immediately. I'm going to bow down in humility before this God and confess my sin of pride and remember what happened to my grandfather and not let that happen to me. Father in heaven, God of heaven, most high God, Yahweh, I repent. I'm prideful. Please show me what I need to do to change my ways. That's what he should have said, right? But what does he do? Ah, Daniel interpreted the, the writing on the wall. I told you I'd pay you off. I'm going to pay you off, even though you told me not to pay you off. It's almost like he didn't even think twice about, it's almost like he didn't even think twice about the warning. Now, we can't get into the psychology of the king to see if he suppressed it or, or whatever. The Bible doesn't tell us. All we know is that the response that should have happened, that was his grandfather's response, didn't happen. The repentance didn't happen. So here's what happened to this king. It's what the writer of Hebrews tells us to be very, be very careful that it doesn't happen to us. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did this king have a hard, unbelieving heart? Did he need to wake up? Okay. Now, let's talk about this Hebrews passage. Look at that in your look at that. You may be hard that you not may that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, let's just talk about this for a moment. Can sin be deceitful? Yes. Why is sin deceitful? What does sin promise you? Does sin promise you fun? Does sin promise you pleasure? But is it lying to you? Yes. And what happens? The word harden is a very interesting word in the original language. It was used of a medical term, like a swelling of a bone. It's the Greek word sclerano. We get the word sclerosis. Does anyone know what sclerosis is? Does anyone want to know what arthrosclerosis is? It's the hardening of the arteries. What happens when you have arthrosclerosis? It's when you have cholesterol, fat collecting your arteries. And what does it lead to? Too much sclerosis, too much hardening of the arteries can lead to either a stroke or a heart attack. So 
a spiritually hardened heart can lead to a spiritual stroke or a spiritual heart attack. It can lead to a hardened heart. So this king has a hardened heart. Because what did, what did Daniel say to him back up in verse 22? This is the charge. This is the, this is the like, look him directly in the eye. Verse 22, you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You haven't humbled your heart. Humble your heart. Do not harden your heart. Humble your heart. Repent. Ask God to give you a soft heart. Whatever you do, remember what happened to your grandfather and humble your heart. Does he humble his heart? No. He's got a hard heart. He's got a calloused heart. So, what do we see in his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar last week? Well, we, we, we talked about this ad nauseum tonight. In utter humiliation, Nebuchadnezzar repents and finds mercy in the living God, truly surrenders to him as the sovereign and ultimate king over all the universe. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did last week. Does his grandson follow in his grandfather's footsteps? Is there any repentance? Is there any contrition? Is there any surrender? No. Let's look at some of these Proverbs. Proverbs 29.1. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond him. Hmm. There comes a point where you're, just, you're, you're so far gone, you've hardened yourself so much. Proverbs 1, 26 through 29. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Now, this is where there's one situation in the Bible where God's judgment is immediate. There's no second chance here, is there? Did God give Nebuchadnezzar a second chance? Yes, to humiliate him like an ox. Does God give Belshazzar a second chance? Well, he had between the time that Daniel interpreted the dream until he went to bed, because what does the Bible say here? Look at verse 30, what does it say? Does it remind you of the rich fool? That very night. What did the rich fool, what did God say? You fool, this night your soul will be demanded of you. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. There's no second chance tomorrow. There's no chance to be walking around eating grass like a cow. It's happened that night. Now, here's what historians tell us. Historians tell us that while this banquet was going on, the king was so blind to the oncoming enemy that the Medes and Persians under Darius captured Babylon and killed the king that night. The invasion happened that night, historically. What did the writing on the wall say? The Medes and Persians are coming. And what happened that night? Historians say that very night when they're partying, they're invaded. They're not even ready for the invasion. And Darius ends up killing the king. Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now, let's think about this for a moment. This is a cautionary tale, if you will, not even though it's a, a true account. 
of what happens when pride overtakes you and you harden your heart and you do not listen to the warnings to repent. And you're so caught up in yourself, you're so caught up in sin, you're so caught up in sensuality that you don't, that God just basically says, I'm taking you out. Okay, now, now this is extreme, but let's go to another parable. And this is in Luke's gospel. What, how did we start tonight? We started with the parable of the rich fool. What's going on in Daniel chapter 5? It's a banquet, right? It's a banquet, it's a party that the king's throwing basically for himself. Let's read the parable of the great banquet that Luke tells us about, a different kind of banquet than the one we see in Daniel chapter 5. So let's turn to Luke chapter 14. And starting in verse 12, you'll see the parable of the great banquet. Okay? This is a different kind of banquet than the one of King Belshazzar. This is not about pride. This is not about the rich and famous. This is not about strutting around in your accomplishments and being drunk on the wine of idolatry. Okay? So let's see what this banquet's about. He said, this is in Luke 14, verse 12. He said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time for the banquet he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field, I must go out and see it, please have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them, please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there still is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Okay, what's the deal here? I think when I preached this back a few years ago, I named the title of this sermon Lame Excuses. <laughs> People are giving lame excuses. They're, they're getting invited to the king's. There's this big banquet, and he goes out and invites people, and they give excuses about why they're not coming. Well, i got to get married, and i got to do this, and i got to do that. And the king's like, why aren't they coming? This is making me mad. So he's like, go to who? The lame, the blind, the poor, the people that can't pay me back, the, the, the outskirts, the dregs of society, those who've been weighed and found wanting those who are destitute, those who are poor in spirit. So here's the point. Is there any reason why Jesus should invite you to his banquet table? Is there anything in you that makes you worthy for, for you to come to the table? No. What are we? We're naked, blind, destitute, spiritually bankrupt. We're sinners in desperate need of salvation. And God calls us to his banqueting table as a mere gift of grace. Now let's think about Jesus for a moment. 
the true king. Belshazzar thought he was the true king, strutting his stuff around and like a picture from a Hollywood movie and the red carpet and all of this paparazzi and basically what happened? He was found weighed in the balance and wanting. He was the one that was bankrupt. Well, let's think about Jesus. Jesus was born in a manger. Jesus grew up in a home of a carpenter. Jesus was not part of the glitz and the glamour. Was Jesus found weighed and wanting? No. When he was found weighed, if you will, he perfectly lived the righteousness of Christ, of God, never once sinned. He fully satisfied the demands of God, lived the perfect life, and was the only one that was qualified to die on the cross. So, when Jesus throws the ultimate banquet at the end of the age, what's that banquet at the end of the age? The wedding supper of the Lamb. When Jesus throws that banquet, only those who have humbled themselves and repented and come to him alone for salvation will be at that great feast. So let me ask you a question tonight. What banquet are you living for? Which banquet do you wish you were invited to? There's two choices. Are you hoping for a place at the table of Belshazzar with all the glitz and glamour that this world has to offer with its empty idolatry and fleeting pleasures? I mean, there are people that would be tempted. I, I, want, I want the life of Belshazzar. I want unending pleasure. I want unending sex. I want unending alcohol. I want unending riches. I'm just going to live a life of pleasure. I want to be part of that life. Belshazzar had the life for a while. But it was taken from him. He was like the foolish man in the parable that we started out with tonight. Eat, drink, be merry. Tonight, your life will be taken from you. Tonight, your life will be taken from you. So you can live for the Belshazzar banquet of sin and pleasure and idolatry, but it only leads to destruction. Or you can live for Jesus' banquet. Are you hoping for a place at the table of the true King Jesus, who can save you and free you to worship him? He can offer you so much more than the allurements of this world. What Jesus offers is true satisfaction and everlasting joy. And I think was it, I think Brent mentioned this either in our Monday morning study or maybe it was last week, but C.S. Lewis has a famous sermon called The Weight of Glory. And this is what C.S. Lewis said, and I'll kind of explain it. This is a famous quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, quote, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. What C.S. Lewis is saying is this. Can you picture a little kid making mud pies in the slum? He's over there in the slums. There's mud, and he, he thinks this is exciting. Rain's coming down, there's like sewer water, and there's this mucky stuff, and he's like making mud pies, and he thinks he's having fun. And like two blocks over, there's what? There's this beautiful ocean <clears throat> with pristine sand where you can make real sand castles and look at the beautiful ocean and see all this greatness. And he's like, this is what Christians are a lot like. Instead of going for that greatness, it's just right around the corner. We're going to settle for making mud pies in the slums. We want these pleasures because we can't think of anything greater over there. Well, here's the thing. Jesus is greater 
He's more glorious. He's more stupendous. He's more worth it. But instead of fixing our eyes on what Jesus has to offer, what do we do? I don't want Jesus. I want a mud pie in the slum. <laughs> I want my little idolatry. And we think it's cool. Like this, you can picture the kid. He's like, he's playing. He thinks it's cool. It's like all he's seen is mud pies in the slum. Okay, little boy, let me take you over to the ocean. He comes to the ocean. He's like, whoa, I've never seen this before. Look at this white sand. Look, you can make huge sand. Like his whole life has changed. Because he's never seen that. And C.S. Lewis is basically saying, Christians, we, we've got that. We've got Christ and all his glory. But what do we want? We want these cheap substitutes and this yucky stuff that we think is going to satisfy. Because we don't believe that that's better. We're too content making mud pies in the slums instead of enjoying. And C.S. Lewis says we're far too easily amused. We're far too easily pleased. We're fooled into thinking that this world has more to offer than Jesus. And we want to eat at Belshazzar's banqueting table as opposed to the table of Jesus. So let's ask the question again. Which table will you eat at? Which table offers you eternal life? Which table provides you with the joy of Jesus? And it's not Belshazzar's table. It's the table of Jesus at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So we got done really early tonight. So are there any questions? Or comments. Yes, Brent. My question that I've read about this before and I was just scanning through it during your talk is that, and I think it's fascinating that this is one of those times that history clearly um, can uh, va um, validate scripture completely mm -hmm. here about how the Medes and Persians came in. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, when you realize that it says a third in the kingdom, that's an interesting question. Um, I've always said, why would he third in the kingdom? And the story makes sense when you hear his father, Nabodius, yeah. Yeah, and he was out kind of battling. Yeah, co regent. Yeah, he, he was not. So helped. he was battling, and here's this brat son that already. Apparently, because the, the belief is that the Medes and Persians went in through the river Euphrates, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a gate there. The Ishtar gate. Yeah, they went in. But the theory is that they were already cutting um, like channels to, to divert the water away so they could go in there. Mm -hmm. And if you go on that theory, what it's saying is that this has been going on for a while. Oh, yeah. They should have known about yeah. this. And here's this brat son that's yeah. having this great party. Yeah, so, so think, that's a good point. So think about historically, it takes a while to invade Babylon, doesn't it? It's not like they just like woke up one day and said, hey, the Medes and Persians, let's go invade. It was probably months of planning, which shows you that Belshazzar was not focused on his kingdom at all, was he? It's like, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry and focus on partying with my friends my dad's off doing something somewhere. My grandpa had weird stories about becoming, you know, cowman. This Daniel guy's, you know, he's kind of an old fogey. Who cares? I've got my concubines. I've got this gold. I've got, let's party. And while he's got that attitude, Medes and Persians come in that very night. Yeah. He's totally oblivious. Anything else?
All right, next week's the most famous passage in Daniel. Daniel and the lion's den. No other questions? Comments or snide remarks? No, like any theological question to stump the pastor while you got him here? No deep theological questions? All right. Well, if that's where we're at, you guys, I'll, I'll, I'll keep you 20 minutes longer next week. No, no I'm just joking. All right, well, let's pray. If that's all you guys have, let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, help us to heed this warning of idolatry, of pride, and, and help us to humble our hearts before you and help us to be aware of any type of deceitfulness of sin that might cause us to have hard hearts towards you and help us to be repentant. Lord, we look at this as an example of a man that just didn't, didn't humble himself. And so, Lord, help us to understand that. Help us to understand, Jesus, that you are the ultimate king and you invite us to your wedding banquet. And it's not because we deserve to be there, but because you have given us grace upon grace. And so help us to be thankful for your grace in our lives and help us to live according to your will as we keep our eyes fixed on you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.